Do you want to get out your sermon outline and have that so you can follow along? I try to figure out what I'm doing up here. So let's turn to the book of Genesis. Oh no, we're not doing Genesis anymore. You got to take your Bible and flip all the way over to the other side. We're in Colossians, the middle of the New Testament, or as the Old Testament scholars call it, the appendix. And you have those four little books, the prison epistles in the middle of the New Testament. You may have uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You may have heard General Electric Power Company or my personal favorite, Gentiles eat pork chops. The, uh, but we're in Colossians. You'll want to turn to the book of Colossians. And uh, if you're in the Gospels or Romans, go right. If you're in Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, James, go left. And you'll find it. Colossians in there. So let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. Starting at verse 1, a very good place to start. Please listen carefully as God's word is read and hear it as God's spirit applies it to your life. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, or Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to a wonderful book, that speaks again and again of the beauty, majesty, and supremacy of Christ. We're often too busy, too preoccupied, too distracted to see Jesus. So this morning we ask that you would refocus our hearts and minds to look at Jesus and the difference he makes for our lives. To do that, we need your word to be living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so by the power of your spirit, use this scripture to bring about needed change in each one of us this day. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Colossians. I'm guessing there's a number of people here today who've never heard me preach on anything other than Genesis. So, um, we're starting a new book, and I'm very excited. Getting ready for this, I've obviously been doing a lot of reading uh, on this. And the other day I read these words. My passion has become singular. Lesser things don't distract me as easily. I'm not as anxious as I used to be. 
I don't fret over things as much. I'm more relaxed. What others think of me, either good or bad, doesn't matter as much as it used to. I'm enjoying life more. The pressure's off. First of all, I didn't write those words. And second of all, my first response to reading those words was, I hate that guy. <laughs> Mostly because I was envious. I wished I could write those words. And my guess is that most of you wish that you could have written those words too. Even to just get one or two of those things, not distracted, not anxious, not fretting, the pressure's off, pick two, any two. That would be really nice. You see, we live in a modern world that can be quite overwhelming at times. We're all too busy, and if you're one of the few who's not, then we don't want to hear about it. Because we are. We're all trying to do too many things, deal with too many people, solve too many problems. And as Frank Pugh told me yesterday, sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees. In other words, the details are so demanding and so overwhelming, we don't take the time to step back and see the big picture. And as I was pondering all of that, and other than forcing me to rewrite this introduction, it got me to thinking about forests and what I enjoy about them. And one of the things that immediately came to mind, perhaps you've experienced this, is when you're out hiking, and you're going down a, the trail, and you're out in the middle of the woods, preferably not lost in the woods, but you're in the middle of the woods, and you're going down this trail, and suddenly you come out into a clearing, and this beautiful scenic vista opens up in front of you, and your eyes just open up, and you see breathtaking landscape, and you just stop and marvel at God's creation. And there's this sense that having that kind of experience is filling and restoring your soul. When you stop, you just look. You don't even know how to respond. You're just trying to take it all in because it's so incredibly beautiful. And you just feel better. And I think it's that type of experience that the Apostle Paul is trying to fill our souls with here in the book of Colossians. He wants us to see the big picture. He wants us to marvel at the breathtaking imagery. He wants to open our eyes and restore our souls. And he's going to do it by showing us the beauty and majesty of Christ. So let's step out of the forest into the modern world, into the open clearing of the Bible, and the church is standing there in the clearing. And it's the early church of the New Testament era, era, and we walk up and we can look in through the windows. We see some interesting people there, and they made an impact on their times, and we wonder, how did they do it? What can we learn from the early church? How can we be that church again today? And I don't want to idealize them, because they had all kinds of problems, most of which would sound pretty familiar to us but they grew by leaps and bounds. And as we look through the window of Colossians 1, what do we see that can help us today? Well, 
in these eight verses, uh, we first see three things. We see there's a particular church. We see a valuable ministry and faithful preaching and teaching. The particular church shows us the transforming value of the gospel. And the valuable ministry shows us the spreading life of the gospel and faithful preaching and teaching shows us how God works the gospel into our lives. And God wants Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church to grow. I believe that. He wants to use us for the conversion of many people because his love is of a spreading nature. And this passage is perfect for understanding real church growth because Paul's purpose here is to affirm this church as authentic and valuable. Now, apparently their pastor was named Epaphras, and he'd gone to this city as a church planner. He became the pastor there of new converts. But then false teachers came in. And so Paul writes this letter to help the Colossian church stay on track. That's why he's affirming them. It isn't flattery. He's assuring them that they are a true uh, apostolic church. And therefore, what he mentions about them is uh, basically standard-issue Christianity. This is what God wants for us and for every church. When we study Paul's epistles, we see that each has a dominant theme. In Romans, it's justification by faith. In Ephesians, it's the mystery of Christ and his church. In Philippians, it's the joy which Christ brings. And in Colossians, it's the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ as the king of all creation and the head of the church. There's no book in the New Testament, even including John's gospel, which presents such a comprehensive picture of the fullness of Christ. And accordingly, there's no writing better equipped to draw us out into the clearing, to open our eyes, and to help us see Jesus than the book of Colossians. Even a quick look at this letter forces us to look at Christ. For example, Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Or we could turn to Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. As we study Paul's letter to the Colossians, may our view of Christ be so expanded and impressed upon us that we will, as a habit, seek those things which are above. But before we jump into the text uh, for this morning, we need to back up and get that big picture snapshot. Where is this place and what's going on there? What's the real issue that caused the Apostle Paul to write? Simply put, they're dealing with what I would call a Christ plus religion. A Christ plus religion. The town of Colossae is located about 80 miles inland from the city of Ephesus in the Lycus River Valley in the western part of modern Turkey. And at one time it was a prominent town in the valley, but uh, now it's a small town in the shadows of its nearby uh, neighbors, Laodicea and Areopolis. 
And biblical scholarship believes that the Colossian church came into being during the Apostle uh, Paul's two-year ministry in Ephesus because Acts 19 says this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, that would include uh, those uh, in Colossae, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And the scriptures reveal that while the Apostle Paul was preaching in Ephesus, two visitors from Colossae came to believe, namely Epaphras and Philemon. Philemon later hosted the Colossian church in his home, and Epaphras served uh, essentially as Paul's lieutenant in evangelizing the Lycus River Valley. So we have this new thriving church that has sprouted in Colossae, although Paul himself, to the best of our knowledge, has never been there. Paul, of course, has a deep interest in this church, and he's prayerfully advising Epaphras and Philemon as necessary. So it's, it's natural that when a big problem uh, shows up in the church there, Epaphras comes to him for help. Now, the problem came from false teachers who were propagating what I think could only be called a Christ-plus religion. Many scholars think it was a form of Gnosticism, but our text isn't really clear, although certainly Gnosticism could have played a role in it since that was a, a false teaching um, a system based on achieving greater levels of special secret knowledge. But the core of this false teaching is simply that Jesus isn't enough. And so they started adding things to Christianity. In Colossae, this system consisted of strict spiritual disciplines, uh, probably borrowed from legalistic Judaism, secret passwords, borrowed from Eastern mysticism, elements of astrology, all sorts of paganism, and it's just all sort of mixed together in uh, this melting pot with Christianity. These people aren't denying Jesus. They're saying it's Jesus plus these other things. So it's all very complex, and it's proudly intellectual. And these false teachers, those in the know, were looking down on the simple Colossian believers, browbeating them and leading some of them astray. And so in the end, it creates this Christ plus religion. And that's the alarming message uh, that Epaphras brought to the Apostle Paul as he waits in a Roman prison. And Paul's brilliant response is this letter, the letter to the Colossians, which presents Christ as the creator and all-sufficient redeemer in the most exalted terms found in Scripture. And Paul's masterful answer has served the church well through the centuries as it has repeatedly faced similar uh, heresies and false teachings and even today is assaulted by false teachers who see Christ as only part of the answer. And so as we take up Paul's letter, we immediately see the apostle didn't attack the problem first, but rather he begins with this exuberant introduction in which he celebrates uh, the church there. He celebrates the Colossian church. It's actually very typical of Paul, characteristically praises the churches before dealing with whatever the pastoral issue was. So his heartfelt commendation arises from the miracle that has taken place in Colossae. 
There was this poor pagan people without hope and without God uh, in this world, and they found Christ, and their lives have been changed. Some remarkable things have happened, which Paul is going to note as we move through this letter. And so the celebration is honest and gracious, and that should be our celebration as well. For we're the church and we have this ministry, both of which are based on the gospel of God's grace as it's found in Jesus Christ. So let's open the epistle of St. Paul to the church in Colossae. Turn with me to chapter 1, verse 1, where we see Paul celebrate the church. Celebrate the church, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints, faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. But Paul had never met the Colossians. He called them the saints, faithful brothers, intentionally exalted language. They're God's holy ones set apart for Christ. They share the same spiritual heritage with Paul, and they both address God intimately as Abba Father. They're family. They call each other brother and sister. But best of all, they're in Christ. One of the deepest, most joyous of gospel mysteries. In simplest terms, it means that the Colossians, as all true believers, had received all that Christ had done for them, all that he is and all that he ever would be. As believers, they were in Christ. The old had gone, the new had come. You know, archaeologists tell us that there's many nameless <clears throat> slabs, tombstones in the catacombs in Rome that carry the inscription in Christo, in Christ, and also bore on the slab. They didn't put the people's names. It just said, in Christo, and under that it said, in pace, in peace. Testifying to the radical nature of the gospel. We also have to note as we read this introduction that Paul seals these words with grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul has, in many of his letters, created this Christian blend of Hebrew and Greek greetings. Customary greeting in the ancient Greek world was Karen. It's a form of grace. It essentially means greetings. We actually see it used several times in the book of Acts. But in Paul's hands, it becomes this freshly minted Christian uh, greeting, charis, or grace. And greeting fellow believers with this word was to celebrate the work of grace in their life. You are a recipient of God's unmerited favor. Praise God for his grace. This is wonderful. It's also, in some senses, a commissioning to live under that grace. You know, maybe you be a great taker of God's grace, a great recipient of God's grace, that you would have the disposition, the uh, dependency, the humiliator, hu hu humility to enable you to receive God's grace. Now, the other half of the greeting, peace, comes originally from the Hebrew, shalom. It means more than, uh, than the absence of trouble. Um, it's a holistic well-being which springs from a sense of the presence of God. And so Paul's wish for the Colossians was they would comprehend more fully their peace and enjoy it in all of its depth. And it's the same for all people, everywhere, at all times. There must be grace before we can experience the shalom, the peace of God. God grace, God's work, comes before peace, our new relationship. 
And among the tragedies of our time is our pursuit of personal peace and happiness apart from God's enabling grace. And that pursuit takes many forms, material, intellectual, social, even religious, and they all end in futility. When sinners find peace through God's grace, that's beautiful. That's cause for rejoicing. So grace and peace is not just a proper Christian greeting. It's a cause for celebration. Who wouldn't want to be part of a church where everyone wants you to experience God's grace and peace? So we're to celebrate the church. We're also supposed to celebrate the ministry. Celebrate the ministry, verse 3. Paul continues his greeting, and he gratefully makes reference to this familiar Christian trio of faith, hope, and love. But he places hope last. Says, verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, faith, hope, and love are mentioned numerous times in Scripture as a sort of uh, apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. None of these qualities can be manufactured by people. They all come from God. So Paul first celebrates their faith in Christ Jesus. Faith is always mentioned first uh, in this trio because apart from faith, there is no Christian experience. So here Paul's very specific about the object of their faith. It's Christ Jesus. You know, today we hear everybody needs faith. You got to have faith. We hear all sorts of people say stuff like that. It's considered to be the component of a balanced life, another charm on the bracelet of one's personal peace and affluence. You know, having faith means you're okay. But the truth is, faith has no intrinsic value in and of itself. It derives its value from its object. So when someone says that he or she has faith, the question has to be asked, Faith in what? Faith in the Redskins? Not so much. <laughs> faith in reincarnation? Faith in faith. I mean, salvation doesn't come by believing in belief. Or even by a set of doctrines like the Westminster Confession of Faith. Or even a creed like the one we'll say in a little while. Salvation comes by believing in Christ. The great missionary John Patton was translating the Bible in the Outer uh, Hebrides. He was searching for a word to translate belief. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith? He couldn't find that word. Finally, he found it, and the word meant lean your whole weight upon. And that's what the Colossians, despite these false teachers, had done. They leaned their whole weight on Christ. And that's worth celebrating. The apostle continues to uh, commend the Colossians for the love that you have for all the saints. For Paul, faith proved its reality by expressing itself through love. As Galatians 5 tells us, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Loving God is seen in how one loves uh, his neighbor 
particularly another believer. After all, uh, didn't Jesus teach us in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now we've all met people who have claimed to be good Christians, who were upstanding and honest and orthodox, but were unloving. Perhaps at times we've been one of those people where there's a loveless goodness, an orthodoxy without charity, a questionable faith. It's, it's the kind of person that Mark Twain had in mind. He's a great theologian, uh, Mark Twain. And he had in mind, he said, he is a good man in the worst sort of way. Love for one another is a sign of true faith. And it's a beautiful, uh, eye-opening thing when you see in the church love for all the saints, not just for some and not just for the most lovable, but for all. This is what made the early church so amazing and so enticing to everyone in the ancient world. Barbarian, uh, Scythian, slave and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, rich and poor, all joined hands and sat down at one table. They knew themselves to all be one in Christ. There's never been anything like that before. And of course, the world around them began to babble about sorcery and conspiracy and complicity and all sorts of unnameable vices. But the Christians were just living out their love for all the saints. A new thing had come into the world, a community held together by love and not by geographical accidents or a common language or even by the iron chains of a conqueror or an empire. And the world just stared at it. They just watched in wonder. And because of it, many were drawn to Christ. Genuine love for all was caused for Paul's joyous celebration of this valuable ministry of the church and it's same cause for celebration today. The results are the same. Faith in Christ. Love for the saints. And finally he celebrates their hope. First part of verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Hope's played last because in this instance uh, Paul saw faith and love as springing from it. So how does hope cause faith and love to spring forth? As pagans, the Colossians had been without God and without hope in this world. Then Epaphras and Philemon came with the gospel and this wonderful, surprising uh, joy of a salvation that was marked by faith, hope, and love. And so that joy grew out uh, of that. They had this new hope that forced them to stick together because it earned them the hatred of the natural world both in the political system and the prevailing religious system. And by partaking of that same hope, they're bound more closely together in their love and encourages greater faith in Christ uh, for each other. And who wouldn't want to be part of a church that shared a great faith, that demonstrated a great love, and that had a hope that bound them together no matter what the world threw at them? We celebrate that church. We celebrate that kind of ministry it's because we celebrate faithful preaching and teaching. In short, we celebrate the gospel. Starting in verse 5, celebrate the gospel. He says there, starting in the second half of verse 5, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, 
which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world that is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Actually here, Paul uh, engages in a little justified hyperbole because the gospel had not yet spread throughout the whole world, but it's well on its way. And what he's celebrating is this dynamic power and universality of the gospel. And unlike the elite foolishness of the false teachers, Christ's good news is for everybody and everyone, everywhere. And it's daily reaching new people. And that hasn't changed. In fact, you know the gospel is growing the church more today, more rapidly than at any point in history. Christianity is not in decline when you look at the whole world. We may think it's in decline if you look at Loudoun County. But it's not in decline when you look at the whole world. It's bearing fruit and growing. I heard Dr. Paul Koistra, who's the head of Mission to the World, and uh, uh, our denomination's mission agency, he'll be with us next year. Um, he reports that every day in Africa, 16,000 people convert to Christ as Savior. Today in Africa, the gospel will bear fruit in 16,000 new believers. Tomorrow, 16,000 more. Tuesday, 16,000 more. By next Sunday, 112,000 more. And the growth trends of the church are accelerating. The responsible estimates are that in, in the year 1900, there were 27 unbelievers for every believer. By 1950, there were 21 unbelievers for every believer. By 1980, there were 11 unbelievers for every believer. And by 1990, there were seven unbelievers for every believer. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Why? What fuels that kind of growth? It may be surprising, but in a word, the answer is heaven. Heaven. Because the really striking thing in our text this morning is this phrase, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. These people were typical of their day. They measured their life by earthly things, and now they measure everything uh, by Christ. They used to parcel out their love on the basis of a selfish advantage. But the walls have fallen down. They love believers of all classes, of all cultures. Something's happened to these people. That's obvious. And what isn't obvious is that their new faith and love are because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. And that's interesting. The eternal payoff waiting for them in heaven is the featured message of the gospel that turned their lives around. Do you see that here? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this, the hope in heaven, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. What's the message that redirected their lives? It wasn't how to reduce stress. It wasn't how to balance your busy life in three easy steps. 
the message that stopped them in their tracks and got them going in the opposite direction was how to go to heaven and what is that worth? The gospel that helped them was not primarily about coping with life here on earth. It was about enjoying heaven. <coughs> I mean, if someone had challenged him and said, you know, you Christians are such dreamers. Pie in the sky, by and by, all that, that's your religion. I think they would have answered, exactly. What we're living for isn't down here in this fifth-rate world. We're going to heaven. You want to come along. Now, it is true that some Christians use heaven as an excuse. But still, the gospel understands this life better than anything else. The gospel tells us this world's going away. God's wrath is coming. Don't settle down here. It's all going to end, and every one of us passes through just once, never to return. In fact, Jesus said, John 14, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? That's heaven. What's it worth? What will heaven give us that this world can't give us and in fact withholds from us? Well, I think heaven is a big place filled with the beauty of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 says, When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, heaven's going to be Christ, visibly displayed and admired and enjoyed by all who have believed in this life. But even more, the Bible is saying that the glory of Christ will be displayed in his saints. It says he will be glorified in his saints. He himself will radiate unimaginable beauty, and we're going to reflect back to him something of his own beauty and majesty from within ourselves. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. His glory towards us, his glory in us going back to him, and this back and forth in Christ and his people will love and be loved in ever-increasing joy forever. It's no wonder that J.B. Phillips paraphrases this verse to say, it will be a breathtaking wonder. In this world, we need to be rescued from floods of smelly, toxic waste. In that world, we're going to swim in a river of pure joy and amazement and awe and exhilaration in Christ. Heaven is Christ pouring out his love upon his people who are enabled then to love him in return with something of the intensity of his own powerful love. And just when we think we're about to explode with joy, Christ will increase our heart's capacity, stretch our mind's understanding, strengthen our glorified body's energies, and we will jump to the next level of joy. And heaven will become happier and happier forever with the only happiness worthy of the greatness of our souls. Does anybody want to go to heaven? It's actually simple. We're the ones who complicate it. But Jesus said, again, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. Believe him, embrace him. Even if the excuse or the thought uh, comes to you that, I, but wait a minute, I don't deserve that. If you really knew me, you would know I'm a bad person. Well, that's true. 
and I'm a bad person too. But heaven stands open to us, not because of our imagined self-improvement, but because Jesus died for sinners on the cross. He is the way, and he alone is enough for you. Trust him, follow him, believe in him, you will go to heaven. Now, if heaven is what believers enter into the instant after our last heartbeat on earth, then this hope should create a somewhat fearless people in the world right now. People going to heaven don't cling to this life. Heaven empowers us to give our lives away for other people and for their joy in Christ. As C.S. Lewis wrote, if you read history, you'll find the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so effective, uh, so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. The early church is marked by faith in Christ and love for all believers because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. What ignites that fire in their hearts? What fans that flame? What keeps that hope alive? Of this, the hope in heaven you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Here's a growing church, the kind of church we want to be. And where's the momentum coming from? The word of truth, the gospel. They knew what they believed. They knew what they didn't believe. It's a matter of truth, and it's a beautiful truth. And what energized the church is not a negative protest against the trends of their society. They would have agreed with uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who said, one word of truth outweighs the whole world. The early church found endless refreshment in the truth, the good news that Jesus is a friend of sinners. That Jesus opens up heaven to bad people. And that truth was so wonderful for them. They didn't care about their own opinions. They had nothing else to go on but the truth and nothing else to offer their world but the truth. And they had that, that word of truth, the gospel. They were fixated on it and never failed them in their need, and they grew. That early church that's out there in the clearing, we don't get to just look in through the windows. We get to open the door and step inside and be part of that church. Motivation to live in such a way that people take notice. Lord, this morning we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off from the word of truth, the gospel, that you came into our hearts and changed our lives. Thank you that Jesus is a friend of sinners like us. Thank you that Jesus makes dead people live. Thank you that you love us far more than we'll ever deserve. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.